Today in the Attorney Career Advice Podcast with Harrison Barnes. And so this is what mentors do. Like mentors protect you. They help you. This is what good attorneys do when they have problems, when their clients have problems. They look at every single angle. Good attorneys should be able to claw their way out of any difficult situation and do the same thing to their client. The other thing that I want you to be aware of is a lot of law firms will open up branch offices and have branch offices. And this is a big thing because they believe that they need them to be powerful and It's about ego and all this other stuff. And a lot of firms open branch offices that shouldn't be doing it because they're not strong enough. When they open branch offices, a lot of firms will hire people that are having problems at their existing firms or don't have the business that they say they do in other cities. An example would be if a firm decides we, because Austin, of course, is a hot market right now, we need an office in Austin. So what they do is they're like, okay, so maybe the firm's in Chicago and opens an Austin office. And I'm not talking about any specific firm. And in order to open that office, they they poach people from other firms. And the people that they poach are usually the ones that are unhappy or maybe troublemakers or not always. And again, not even maybe 50% of the time, but a lot of the time. And so they get end up with a group of people that probably don't have a lot of business and are unhappy and have a bad attitude in the branch office. And I'm just telling this to firm leaders. I'm telling this to everyone so you understand that this is what happens. And then those attorneys do not generate the business that they say they had. And the firm is left supporting those people from the main office and paying salaries and trying to save face. And look, But that's the first to go. They just cut that arm off. What do you do if you're a firm and, and you're suddenly losing all this business and, and your whole work is slowing down? You hold on to a, an office. It's not doing anywhere near its potential like it said it was going to. And where you've got partners that are unhappy and 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 you've hired people that aren't to the, the same level as your existing, as your main office, I mean, no, you get rid of it. And you keep the people around that are loyal and, and that out of, out of sight, out of mind, you just cut the office off. That's what they do. And when those partners leave or when the firm slows down, sometimes maybe they'll laugh. Most of the people, I saw one firm, it was the funniest thing ever. It was a firm in, it was a New York firm in Silicon Valley, this is a long time ago, it was maybe in 2002 or three, and they'd opened one of these offices there and and had to get rid of everyone. Or maybe this was, I don't know, maybe it was 2008 or something. And I, there was a partner I knew there. And so I called him and, uh, and the office at one point had 30, 30 attorneys in it. And so I called the main line of the office. And, uh, and again, this is a partner that was the managing partner of the office. Very funny. He was from New York. And I called the main office, main line, and uh, expecting them to pick up and say this big firm name and everything and transfer me to him. And I, I didn't realize how bad things were there. And uh, I called the main line and uh, someone picked up on a speakerphone and he said the firm name. And I realized it was him. Like this, again, this firm had 30 people in at one point, but it had let everyone go, or maybe not 30, maybe 15, but had enough that it was a presence. And he was the only person in the entire office. And it was very funny. He called me Barnes for some reason. He wasn't even calling me my first name because I knew him fairly well. And anyway, the point is, it was very funny. And so this is what happens when law firms with branch offices, they just, they don't often keep them around when the market gets bad. And and sometimes law firms are often overly dependent on too few clients and they lose or in danger of losing his clients. And that can also be a very dangerous place to be. Do you want to take back control of your legal career? We have a solution for you. Harrison Barnes, the number one legal recruiter with over 20 years of experience, hosts weekly webinars followed by live Q&A sessions every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific 
1 p.m. Eastern. These webinars are packed with helpful information that you can use to advance your legal career. Best of all, after each webinar, Harrison stays for as long as needed in order to answer every question. I've seen firms with one client, one. I, there was a big firm in LA, it was called uh, kind of Wiki and Rank or something. And I don't want to defame anybody, but there was a big healthcare firm not too long ago. And, and I had some kind of fee dispute with a the firm. They hired someone, a partner for me, and then we're trying to avoid paying me and all this stuff. And I remember thinking, these are bad people, they're going to be in trouble. Something's going to happen to this firm. You don't treat people like this. And then I found out later that, and they eventually did pay me, maybe I accepted a fee of, I don't know, I think they hated it all. I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. But the point is that, that this firm had one client. It was a healthcare firm and it had one healthcare client. And it was something that the head of the firm had worked there as a general counsel and decided to start his own firm. And, and the firm grew. I think at one point it had 50 or 80 attorneys in it. And all of a sudden, the client decided, hey, this doesn't make sense, us paying these, this law firm. They've upset us or something. And they might have had a few other clients, but it was pretty much all dependent on this one client. And, and all of a sudden, that client fired them and they went away. And the firm just, boom, just like that. And, and what was funny about that is then I, I looked up the partner and I don't remember if that's the right name or not. And again, I'm not trying to defame you, but if I looked up the partner that had been the name partner that had tried to stiff me out of this fee years ago, and, and, what it, and what I found, it was very funny, was he basically was a solo practitioner and, and, and didn't look like much is going on. All these broken images and stuff on his website and it just it didn't, obviously wasn't doing well. And his bio just basically talked about how he once had a firm that had 80 attorneys in it. So it's just law firms go out of business for this stuff all the time. I see it and I'm just giving you one example, but I see this all the time. A law firm has to have a lot of business and it has to be diversified. That's why law firms have trust in estates and real estate and bankruptcy and litigation and corporate and all these things. If they do only one thing, that's very risky if that is not in favor. And so that's the way they diversify is a way that helps them and you and and if they're overly defend, dependent on a few large matters and these go away, that can be very problematical. I've told you the stories about law firms that go out of business because of cases settling. Law firms that are overly dependent on corporate can have all sorts of problems. New York is bad because, and again, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about a couple markets. So when you look at law firms and the, the big law firms in New York, it's all corporate and then a lot fewer litigation and other practice area people for most of them. When you look at law firms in Washington, D.C., which I've never seen slow down, by the way, always doing well. It's never having any problems. Hint, hint. It's just a good market. When you look at law firms in Washington, D.C., they're obviously doing a lot of work for the government so that the government never stops giving them work. But they're all like litigation and lobbying and all that stuff and a very few corporate. So those law firms typically do very well. So if your law firm is overly dependent on corporate, and, and you're not getting, there's not a lot of litigation work there, you're in major trouble. Again, I know other law firms, I told you about one earlier, I was talking about the laid off all these litigators and then would hired all these litigators, I guess it was 30 in total. And then after a case settled, they laid off everyone. And these are great people. They had awesome background. I told you about 10 of them were from Jones Day. So that happens. And then and this stuff happens all the time. It's another reason why you need to be aware all the time of what's going on in the market. And these are just a few of the issues, but they can be very dangerous when you're at a law firm like that. My next piece of advice is to identify anyone in your firm 
that protect you or take you with them. If you are in a firm where there's danger signs, which new branch office is a danger sign, overly dependent on corporate is a danger sign, partners leaving is a danger sign, your corporate attorney is a danger sign, your real estate attorney is a danger sign, all these things that you understand that are dangerous for you, or your partner without business and is a danger sign, your hours are bad and you're not getting work is a danger sign. All these danger signs. If you're in a firm where there's danger signs, you need to get right away. You need to identify anyone in your firm who can protect you or take you with them. And it's important for attorneys to have a mentor who can protect them when things go bad in the firm. You need protection. And if you don't have a mentor who has access to clients, work, and clout within your firm, then you're in danger. Mentors are incredibly important. I Again, I do not know how much I can stress how important mentors are. But to let you know how important mentors are, uh, I'm going to give you two stories about, I'll give you two or three stories about my mentors and how important they are. Because I want you to, I want to give you a little taste of what a mentor can do for you. So I, when I was in high school, I really wanted to go to Harvard. I wanted to go to Harvard because my father had gone there. A bunch of people from his family had gone there. And I'm from, and again, I'm, a, I'm from an old American family. It's very old. And so a lot of people from my family, one side has gone to Yale and the other gone to Harvard. And again, I'm not saying this to brag. It was different back then. And just so you understand, the time my dad applied to Harvard, I think if you were like a white, not a white, but if you were a male and coming from a, your odds of getting in were like 60 or 70, it was very high. So it's not like getting to Harvard's like it is now. And even when I was applying, so I'm not, again, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it was a big deal for me to try to go there. And unfortunately, I just, at the time, I, there was a lot of things I was doing well, but I didn't, didn't have uh, uh, the ability to get in there. So I had a mentor and it was someone that I believed in at my school. He was a, a guy that had got a PhD, I think from Yale. He was at my, he was an English teacher and everything he did, again, I was his, I would do everything I could to do it good work for him. I would participate in class. I would be prepared. I would stay after class and talk to him. I would I chose him as my mentor. I admired him. I asked him questions. I followed him around and walked with him after class and did everything I possibly could to be on his side. And, and I loved him and I spoke positively about him. Now, when I say love, I didn't mean love in a man versus man love sense, but I meant man, I just was very respectful to him. I, I, he ran a literary magazine for the school and I submitted everything I could there. And I just did everything I could because I, because he was my mentor and he helped me and provided me advice. And, and he did something interesting too, which I'm going to bring this up just because this is an important webinar. And but he did something, this has been a piece of advice that I want you to understand. So I really wanted to go to Harvard. And, and he said, this is when I was a junior. He said, if you want to go there, you need to stand for something. They can't look at your resume and think, oh, this guy's just good grades and this and that, and that you have to stand for something because they get so many applicants that, that you have to stand for something. He said, and I'll give you an example. He said, one, one guy that I was my mentor a year or two ago, he studied bugs and he didn't have the best grades, but he was a very big bug expert and he went to conferences and wrote papers and did all this stuff and studied bugs and and they looked at him and was like, wow, that's really interesting. Someone that's got a passion for something. So it's the same thing with law firms in your practice area, by the way. I say this all the time, and I don't think people understand 
what I'm saying. Most resumes of people that are applying to Harvard will say things like, oh, I'm on the Glee Club. I'm a student council president. I, I also am on track and captain of my track team. And I got these great SAT scores and great grades. That doesn't do anything for them because everybody's like that, right? But the guy with the interest in bugs, nothing but bugs, has a focus. Well, what happens with resumes, and I'm sorry to digress here, but what happens with resumes is people put down all these different practice areas and things that they do and think that that's helping them and say, oh, I got exposure in this, I got exposure in that, and that. No, you stand for one thing. You don't you stand for bugs or you stand for corporate or you stand for M&A or you stand for environmental litigation or you stand for one thing. And that's how you get people's attention. You don't get people's attention by doing 15 different things. And by the way, when I say I represent 2% of the people that apply to BCG, I represent 2% of the people because only 2% of the people know what they want to do and know what they want to do. One more story, and then I'm going to get back to the other story. The other story is I love Tony Robbins. I actually worked with him personally in business, I've been, he's been my friend, and spoken at his conferences and all this stuff. And, and I haven't had contact with him in some time, so I'm not using his name and dropping names, but I'm telling you that when I need to, I connect with important people that inspire me. And with him, I've stayed at his house in Fiji. I've traveled with him on private planes. I've, I've worked with him and gone to Australia with him. I've met with him Tells and Four Seasons and Palm Springs and had private meetings. And just This is someone that I work with. And, and so you should be, but he has a book. It's a very good book. It's called Unlimited Power. And what that book says, there's a quote at the beginning. It's fun. It talks about a study that since been over, it's no longer, so it's not valid or something. What that book does is it, it basically has a point where it, it talked about the study. And it says basically that, I don't know, 1950 or something, Everybody that went to Yale College was surveyed. And there's some truth to the study, but it's not complete. But the book talks about it. Everyone that went to Yale College was surveyed. And, and when they were graduating and asked what they wanted to do, and only, again, it's the same number, only like 2% or 3% or something knew what they wanted to do. Some people said they wanted to be doctors and lawyers, and they were asked where they wanted to be and what they wanted to be doing in 30 years or something. And then they went back 30 years later, 1980 or 1982, whatever the year was, and they surveyed all those people. And they said to them, what are you doing? How much money are you making? What is your net worth? All this kind of thing. And, and what they found from the people that responded was the people that, that of that 2%, 5%, I don't know what the exact number is, and I don't want to make it up, but whatever that percentage is, that those people had, that 2% had double the net worth, the people that knew what they wanted to do when they were graduating, of the other people that didn't know what they wanted to do. So double, you take 2% of the people, and they're worth maybe, I don't know, 500 million, and the other 90%, 8% are worth maybe 200 million or whatever the number is. Just that 2% alone is double. So this is what it means. Not, not everything's about money, but I think there was other things about happiness. And so if you know what you want to do, you're going to be much better off and that's going to help you. And, and it's been studied. It's been, there's all sorts of goal studies. And I sense, I, I study personal improvement and, and how to help people in this for a living. And, and he did get that. I think he got that from another guy. God, I got to forget the names of where he got it from. But there's another known inspirational guy. Okay, he's got an Irish name. But anyway, I'll find out his name and tell you later. But the point is a mentor can help you. So 
what did this guy say? This guy that, that my English teacher. What happened when I when I got to when I want, really wanted to go to Harvard? I had to take these tests, these admissions tests, my my junior year, and and my father has, was doing all of this admissions work for Harvard. He had to withdraw the year I was there, but I was essentially told that if I got a certain score. On my my what do you call it? And again, I apologize that things used to work this way. I know it's not fair, but if I got a certain score on my achievement test, meaning you had to take this test in Spanish and all these things, I would have a very good chance of being admitted because of my SAT scores and grades and stuff. And that's what I was told. And and so I had to drive to this other part of town, and this is before GPS and things to take this achievement test in November or something or whenever the last period of time was to take them, and I got lost. And I showed up for one of the achievement tests 40 minutes late or 30, it was an hour or something. And I had to rush through it and I didn't finish it because it was the last time I had to take it. And I called my dad after it and, and he said, I just got rejected from Harvard. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty awesome. Wow. And just completely devastating. Then, then I talked to my advisor and I said, I wish there was something I could do. And he said, where else do you want to go? And I said, well, I want to go to the University of Chicago. I probably should have picked that initially. It's more my style. And he goes, that's where you'll go. I thought that was incredible. And it's where I went. And, and what happened, the reason I got in there, again, a very competitive school, and I didn't have an in there. And at the time, the admissions rate, if you were an alumni or something from Harvard was and you had the qualifications were really high. It was like, this we're talking about 30 plus years ago, 70 or 80%. Plus I had, so the, it's not like that anymore. And there's, but the point is he got, helped me get in there. And it was because of that connection. And, and I know he did. And, and that was really nice. And it's not that the school did anything wrong. It's just that he went to bat for me. And so this is what mentors do. Like mentors protect you. They help you. They, they get behind you and they make sure good things happen to you. I had another, I have a cousin that was laid off. He was working in Hong Kong at Sherman and Sterling and, and there was a recession and, and they didn't have a job for him anymore. And they had to let him go, but he had a mentor and that mentor had a client that was a insurance company overseas and a pretty freaking awesome area to work. And they got him a job there after he'd been out for a month, that mentor just kept pounding the pavement for him and he became general counsel years later. And even before he was general counsel, they were paying him under the seven figures, meaning over a million dollars a year. And these mentors change your life. They, it makes a big difference. So many mentors in my life have helped me. And if you have a mentor, I have more mentor stories. And I could frankly tell them to you all day. But the people that have helped me in my life have always been mentors and people that look out for me. I'm going to tell you one more story because again, I think this is a very important webinar. The next story is when I, I started my first business, which was a contracting business. I told you about that earlier in, in Detroit. It was a, a asphalt ceiling and type business. And But anyway, I started it and I didn't know what I was doing. I wanted to have my own business. And I started when I was in high school in my last year and, and my family was not wealthy. They told me, my dad was basically like, you need to pay for all your spending money and, and vehicles and insurance and all the stuff when you get to, and he actually did help me with my tuition, which is very generous, and lived in a small apartment to do it and all this stuff to help me with everything he had, which is I'll never forget. But point is that I, I started this asphalt business and 
I had all these problems. All these things went wrong. I spilled asphalt on sidewalks and had to rent power. I had clients not pay me. I I got sick and burned. And I just, I had all these problems. Vehicles broke down and it was very, it was devastating. I've never been so stressed out. And so I, I couldn't do it anymore. And I was bouncing checks and and I thought I was going to go to jail for bouncing checks and I did pay them. But the point is I did this for a, two or three, a couple months before I started school at Chicago. And, and I was so depressed by the whole thing that I was like, I need to get a job. So I got this job as a garbage man. It was the only job I could get working in Gross Point Woods, Michigan and making minimum wage. And, and so I did this job and, and I said to myself, I'm going to go back and fix all these jobs that I messed up, even if no one's going to pay me. So I went and I, once I'd saved up enough money, I realized I'd probably have to work when I got back to the University of Chicago. But once I'd saved enough money, I went out and bought all the materials and money I needed to, to fix this asphalt and, and these asphalt jobs, meaning things where I got in on houses and hadn't done a complete job. And so I bought all the materials and went back and, and started fixing them. And so one day I was in a hardware store and this man came up to me and he said he was trying to buy some all these materials. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm buying those materials. And then for whatever reason, I started telling him how to do the work and giving him all the advice and how much he should be spending. And I was out of the business at that point. I was a garbage man. I, that was all I had. I was just going to fix what I'd done and do the right thing and put positive energy on my side. And so I went back and I decided I was helping, going to help fix everything. And I was in the hardware store and I started telling this guy everything he needed to do. I gave him advice. And I sat there and talked to him for over an hour. Then he said, would you drive out to this condominium complex where I'm trying to buy all this materials to have it done because I'm on the board or whatever. And I want to have this work done. And I don't, I want to know what I should be paying if I pay someone else to do it and hire a contractor. And I was like, sure, no problem. So I went out there and I spent, it took a long time because I had to use like a measuring wheel and you would charge price per square foot. And so I got out there maybe because it was this, it wasn't a hardware store. It was like a Home Depot type place. I got out to this place around eight or nine and I measured it until one in the morning, spending all this time walking around in the dark, just doing something nice for someone. I didn't care. It was no corresponding benefit. And then the next day I printed up an old dot matrix printer. You used to have these, anyways, there were not laser printers back then. I printed up all this stuff for him and sent him basically what it would cost. And I told him what it should cost. And I didn't say I was up till you know, one in the morning, he got home at two or anything. I just told him what it should cost. And again, when you do good things for people, you don't brag about it and tell them what you're doing. You just do it and the universe will reward you in return. But I just told him and he said, okay, thanks. And then a couple of days later, he called me and he said, and it was a lot of money back then. It was like, you know, 20, it's called the garbage man story. It's on It's on my personal blog. But it's anyway, I told him you should be spending 2,500 or 3,000 or whatever to do it. And the materials for a job like that might cost three to four hundred dollars. I don't remember. But I told him this is what you should be spending. A couple of days later, he called and said, Would you like to do it? And I said, Are you kidding? And, and my mom, I remember, was so excited because she he called her and told her that, that he wanted me to do it. And, and so she called the Department of Public Works where I was working and asked to speak to me. And told him I needed to call this guy right away, which is cute. And so I called him and, and he said I could do the job. And it was literally one of the greatest moments of my life at that point because he gave me the job and I did it. It took me like two days and I made $2,500. 
And, and it was more money than I'd ever had in my life. Right now, it's probably six or 7,000, which would be nice to take to any college. It saved my life. And then every year from then on after, he had me do the same job. And it enabled me to big build this business, became successful. And I did that work every year. Very moving experience for me. It made me very happy. So this is what mentors can do for you. And this is what people, when you serve them, even when it doesn't look like in your self-interest, when you do things for partners, if it doesn't look like in your self-interest, when you do things for other people, even though you don't expect any corresponding reward, this is what happens. I know a partner, a guy that I really is a partner at Boy Schiller and one of my mentees or someone I used to mentor professionally. You can hire me to be your mentor, but this is someone that did. And he had built up this big book of business. And I was like, "What? how did you do it? And he said, I just go out and anytime someone's down or needs help, I help them and I don't expect any corresponding benefit. And if they become a general counsel or anybody later, they help me and they refer others to me. And that's what's changed my life and my career. Amazing. This guy came again from nothing. I don't the same kind of thing. So this is what people do. And this is how you help yourself. And people will look out for you if you look out for them. And so again, if you're close to a partner with a lot of work, you should speak with them about your concerns with the firm and ask them what they think you should do. And and again, you need to get close to people. These are people reward you if you if you do things for them without a corresponding reward. And I want to keep making this point to you because it's so important how things work. You need to speak with them about your concerns with the firm and ask them what they think you should do. And if that partner has seen the writing on the wall and is planning to leave, see if they can take you with them. I want to tell you one other story. And it's funny in the Bible, they talk about someone's Pharisees are like, why is Jesus asking all these? And again, I'm sorry for talking about this because I know most, but why is Jesus talking in parables? And he says something about that's how people learn. They don't get the message. If you just tell them, they learn through parables. So I'm telling you personal stories. So I was hosting a dinner for some people in YPO not too long ago at my house. And, and one of the guys that came, and these people have big businesses. This particular guy has a business that does $80 million in revenue a year he, or more. And, and he's got all these businesses. And, and he's from Iran. And, and he was telling me that in Iran, the way people do business is it's just face-to-face. You, get, you do everything you possibly can at one point, and, and you try to get the best bargain you can. You bargain the heck out of everything. And it's you call the bizarre mentality, and, and you just try to win at all costs because this is the last time you'll ever see the person in negotiation. He said it has to do with people in the desert passing each other or something. Again, I'm not trying to be racist. I'm just saying, and they'll never see each other again. And I don't think that's, it's just a cultural thing. That's what he said. So he said, that's the mentality he started his business with. And and he graduated from college and was doing this and never got ahead. Nothing was ever happening. He was trading in electronics. And so he had a guy that was Sony that was in charge of distributing PlayStations or something. And and I guess when you sell, when a realtor, I didn't realize this, but when a, the places like Best Buy and stuff are always like, oh, we have no margins. And, but actually a lot of this stuff, like these PlayStations and stuff, the margins are like 100%. So if you're buying it for $300, or buying it for $150. And, and so he wanted to get a certain type of PlayStation. And the guy said, listen, I'll tell you what, I, I can't sell you any of these. I'm giving them to my for clients. But if you buy $5 million of this last year's PlayStation I'll see what I can do for you in the future. And he said his first reaction was like, why would I buy $5 million of this last year PlayStation? I won't make any money. I'll have to hustle. I have to contact all these chains. And 
convince him to take it and do me a favor. It'll take me weeks. And uh, the guy said, do whatever you want. And so he's okay. Eventually he came back. He didn't have any other, you can buy these on credit or something. So that's how he came up with the money. So we took this $5 million in these uh, PlayStation, these last year's Playstations or whatever the previous video game thing was. And he spent a few months just spending all this time moving them. And he didn't make any money. He lost money, but not a lot. And, and the guy, he came back to the guy, he's like, okay, I saw him. The guy said, okay, thanks. And then, and, and then a year or two went by and nothing happened. And then the guy, some new PlayStation thing came out or something. And the guy called him and said, I got some news for you. He said, what? And he said, I'm going to give you $30 million of this new PlayStation thing or whatever it is. And I'm going to make, give you first options on them. So you can go to all the chains and sell them. You're the only one that has them or some big number. And, and the guy said, are you kidding? He said, yes, I'm giving you all of these PlayStations and you're going to be the first one to get them because you did me a favor. So the guy did it. And now he's got this big company of like hundred plus people in it and on top of the world. So this is how it works. Like you don't get ahead by, by putting your self-interest first. You get ahead by helping other people. And he said, it's that point when that guy did that. And when that happened, that I realized you need to give to receive and how business works in the U.S. compared to how it works in Iran. I'm not saying everyone like that in Iran. I don't want to make negative cultural statements, but he said, that's how I realized how it works. So now, just like the partners I was talking about, just the one I've been talking about, this is how we got ahead. And if you don't have that sort of relationship with powerful people, then and work is slowing down and no one's telling you what to go and you don't have any favors owed, then you need to leave. And if you're not getting more work than the other attorneys, if you are getting more work than the other attorneys in the firm, you may be safe. But if you're not, you need an exit strategy. So the final thing is to look for a new position. If it looks like there's a problem in your firm and the firm may not recover from, you should certainly most look for a position immediately. And you need to take all the actions that I told you about above, meaning apply to as many places as you can. Take a look at the thing I told you about. It's called BCG, reverse recruiter or something. I don't even know if I made it live yet, but I'm trying to use it to help people. Take a look at Law Crossing. Take a look at other job sites. I'm not here to just promote my own companies. Sign up for BCG and find other places. Use lists and different things to apply to firms. There's a bunch of lists on BCG of firms you can apply to. I believe that is a smart thing to do. You should apply to every possible firm you can and just do that. That's what I recommend. You need to get out there and you need to apply to a lot of places and you need to be all out. You're better off turning down an offer than not getting one. You're going to feel a lot better if you do that. You're better off moving your family than putting your family through the heartache of not having a job. Do you want to grow your legal career? A lateral move might be the right choice to get you on track for your career goals. Working with a legal placement firm like BCG Attorney Search can open doors for you and help you live the life you dream of. If you're looking for a new legal job, send us your resume so we can help. Visit www.bcgsearch.com and click on Submit Resume to be paired with one of our legal placement professionals who will work tirelessly on your behalf to get you your dream legal job. Submit your resume to www.bcgsearch.com to get started today. Okay. The most important thing you can do is look for a job immediately. It looks like you might lose your position. You need to look broadly and extensively, do an all-out search. And, and again, most people don't do this or they wait. Don't be like the frog in the water when the water starts to boil. The worst mistake you can make is delaying the inevitable. 
And again, most attorneys convince themselves that they're safe and they don't want to see what is going on until it's too late. You can't do that. You need to take action. And again, no one cares. That's the thing that everyone like in the world thinks about themselves. And that's fine. That's how it works. You sit around, you think about yourself, you worry about yourself and your ego. And this is the mindset that most people are in. It's very hard to get out of. That's the whole point of the Buddha and the all these different religions, that's what they talk about, is getting out of the minds. But everyone sits around and does that. But you need to realize that no one cares in the future if you're a slowdown of a recession or a slowdown in your firm. Your job, let me be very clear with you, your job as an attorney is to represent yourself. What is a client? What if, if you can't represent yourself in this sort of thing, how are you supposed to represent clients? You're a bad attorney. Okay, so let's just face it. If you can't represent yourself, you're not a good attorney. So a good attorney is going to find every argument, every possible method, every way to get their client out of trouble. A bad attorney or average attorney is just going to be like, oh, I did this, I did that. That's how most people are. I was talking, I love studying medicine and all sorts and the mind and all this stuff. I love studying it. And yesterday I was able to interview. It was very fun. I was very honored that he talked to me. He's normally, I think he charges $3,500 an hour on his patients. He's considered one of the most famous psychiatrists and cutting-edge psychiatrists in the world. He's from Stanford, I think. But anyway, I talked to him and it was very interesting, his observations about things. But he was, what was he talking about? Something very interesting. He was he was saying that most people in his profession, and the reason he's so famous is most people in his this psychiatry profession will look at someone and just follow this path. We'll be like, okay, this person needs Prozac, or this person just has this issue and they need this. And very few people will take the time to understand wait a minute, maybe this person should be tested. Maybe there's not just depression. Maybe there's something else going on. And, and what if they take this medicine, they've taken this one for a long time. It's actually changed the brain. So we need to look at other things and how that works. And then we need to stabilize them and then put them on these other things. And, and maybe the problem really isn't trauma or something. Maybe their problem is this or that, and maybe it's low blood sugar. We need to test their blood sugar. And we need to do all these different, this is how good attorneys think. And this is the reason the guy's famous because everyone comes to him and, and I'm not going to refer him because he don't want referrals, but everyone comes to him and gets these kind of insights and he cures things. Well, this is what good attorneys do when they have problems where their clients have problems. They look at every single angle. You need to look at every single angle. You don't want to sit there and just look at one angle and say, I need a recruiter or I need to apply for jobs on Indeed or I need to email big firms. No, you need to go all out and listen to everything I'm saying. You need to network. You need to apply to lots of jobs. You need to sign up for paid job sites like Lawcross. You need to look at reverse recruiting. You need to find coaches. You need to talk to lots of recruiters. You need to do all this sort of stuff. You don't, again, don't be a loser, man. Don't sit around and look at one, one aspect of it. I'm telling you this as someone that's been in the self-improvement industry, that studies achievement, that does everything they possibly can that's written about this. Read my blog. I'm trying to help you. Read all the articles I've done at BCG. Why has this webinar gone on for three hours? It's because I know what the heck I'm talking about or I'm doing my best. And this is what you should be doing for your candidates as well. You should be doing your, the things that you do as well. You should be doing everything you possibly can to get ahead and to do things. So that's the thing. And again, the market will continue to pass judgment on your legal skills, regardless of legal recessions and slowdowns. 
And, and with other, will other attorneys keep you around or take you with them or protect you during the quality of your legal skills or hard work and commitment, or will they not? Or will you put in the effort required to stay employed and prove your commitment? And again, a good attorney, again, this is very important. A good attorney should be able to claw their way out of any difficult situation and do the same thing to their client and understand the warning signs. When should their clients settle? When should they walk away from a deal? All this sort of stuff. And that's what you're hired to do. And that's what this is about. This is a test and it's an opportunity for you to become awesome and a good attorney and to get out of this and to become a very successful partner, by the way. And this is the final thing I'm going to say, because this has gone on a long time and I think I've answered all the questions, but to be a partner. This is what you need to do. You need to be good at all this. You need to be able to watch associates and mind them and, and the people working for you and watch everything. You need to be able to work hard and follow the law firm protocol. And then you need to be able to get business. That's how it works. Just because I'm saying that you don't need to be, that you it's not made to be smart, is not true. It's something else. It's about using your skills and the right skill set. So thank you everybody for being here today. I very much appreciate it. Or everyone that stuck around for this is a star. You're learning a lot and it's going to change your career and life. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this edition of the show. If you are an attorney looking for a change, head on to bcgsearch.com.